everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys about Sinead O'Connor. Now, if you guys have heard the news, just recently, the other day, Sinead O'Connor died. She passed away. At this point in time, I believe we still don't know her cause of death. You know, it got me thinking. I kind of surpassed Sinead O'Connor a lot uh, in my life. I think maybe because I was listening to the Cranberries more and I love Dolores a lot. Um, they actually give me very similar personalities, Dolores O'Rourdon and Sinead O'Connor. It just got me thinking like, you know, the only thing I really know about Sinead O'Connor is that she did that Nothing Compares to You song that Prince did before. That's the only song I knew from her. And so when I heard the news that she died, I was shocked. And so I really wanted to look into more about her life and what she stood for and the things that she experienced in her life and what she had to say for herself. And I must say, her backstory, it's very fascinating. If you don't know about Sinead O'Connor, I'm happy to present to you who she was. Um, I'm also happy that I was able to find such great information via like magazines from the 90s and interviews that she did. There were interviews a plenty with Sinead O'Connor. So I'm very happy that I can provide to you guys a lot of rich detail. And not only that, but I can present to you Sinead's story in her own words because I think that is so integral that you hear it from her own voice, not just me telling it to you. Um, so Sinead O'Connor was born on December 8th, 1966 in Dublin. She was the third of five children. Her father, John, was a structural engineer who later turned barrister and, of course, uh, her mother. So Ireland didn't allow for divorce. That's just kind of what it was. Ireland still is, I don't want to speak out of turn, but Ireland, to my understanding, still is a very strong Catholic uh, country. They're very strongly rooted and cemented in, you know, Roman Catholic ideology. That was such that back then, especially when Sinead was growing up, that the church didn't allow for divorce because that wasn't seen as the proper thing to do, that if you got married, you had to stick it out. Her parents were not well suited for one another. At some point here, though, in 1979, Sinead left her mother because she was living with her mother at the time. And she decided to live with her father, who had left Ireland and went to Virginia, of all places. And he, while he was here, remarried another lady. So she stayed in Virginia for a couple of years. She went back to Ireland when she was 15 in 1981. While she was in Ireland, you know, she was struggling to get by with her family. And she was also rebelling as well. So she explains that she would shoplift, that she would steal things, and she became very good at it, particularly stuff like shoes. Like shoes and money were just like the things that like she knew really well how to grapple and how to like sneak, or sneak away with to, to get. She said that her shoplifting was a response to her mom's misery and said that she collected money for a, quote, charity. So she got this money. She tried to help her mother as best she could um, to provide for her mom. She's trying her best to help the situation, but it doesn't end very well for her, the shoplifting. Um, so she ends up 
going to this place for 18 months. And I had no idea what this term even was, but they call it in Ireland a Magdalene Asylum. And I had to research what a Magdalene Asylum was. I didn't know. It's essentially Catholic asylums that housed fallen women, and they were known as workhouses, basically. So they were housing women that were prostitutes, women who got pregnant out of wedlock, or it was also for troubled girls without homes or families. So Sinead fell into this because she was being very rowdy with her shoplifting. So she was sent away for 18 months to live in this Magdalene asylum, which is a workhouse. So she worked and she hung out with these other girls that were also troubled for one reason or another. And they also were deeply rooted in Catholic beliefs. So this wasn't just any workhouse. This was a workhouse where she would be hanging around with the nuns. And nuns can be very brutal. They take it out on these young, innocent kids. That's where she went for 18 months. But let me give you the background uh, that Sinead says herself in regards to her shoplifting. I was trying to make my mother happy by getting money for her. Between the ages of 9 and 13, I must have been dragged to police stations about 8 or 9 times. But I never got charged with anything because I used to put on the waterworks and give them like, oh, my mother will kill me, all that stuff, which I used to believe. So I never actually got charged with anything. It was over a pair of shoes that finally put me away. I used to steal things like toy makeup sets just for the sake of doing it. I'd go into a shop and steal a magazine and sweets and things, and then I got into the habit of it. And then, because I was the best at it, I was the one who was sent in to get serious things for other people. Like if my friends wanted to go out with their boyfriends and they wanted a pair of shoes, I was the one who went and got the shoes, which is how I got caught, stealing a pair of gold shoes for my friend Theona. Then I began to steal money off my parents, which everybody did, but they couldn't really handle it. So she describes her time at this Magdalene Asylum as a juxtaposition of sorts. She describes it on one hand as it being one of the most traumatizing experiences that she's ever had in her life due to the treatment. Now, I did some pretty thorough background research on Magdalene Asylums, and there have been an outpouring of horrific accounts from victims that, of course, left the asylums and that went public with lawsuits suing these Magdalene Asylums for abuse. So sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, anything that you can really think of where depravity festers in places like that, you know, where people in high positions like these nuns would go out of their way to brutally inflict a lot of harm on these young girls who were waywards, but they were looking for a way to just live. So they would also work, have chores to do. It was here that she would also develop her writing and her music and her alone time. Um, And she also learned to develop her rebellion against conformity. She already had a rebellion against authority. That was not a problem. She would be sexually abused. And also she knew the dirty, nasty, horrible things that the Catholic Church were doing to, you know, young kids. And at this time, it wasn't really an open discussion. It was more of like a closed secret. Or I suppose maybe a better way to say it, it was actually an open secret. A lot of people knew, but they were actually hush-hush about it. But not Sinead. Sinead was always very vocal. 
So when things got particularly rowdy in these Magdalene asylums, certain students, as they were called, were sent to sleep in the adjoining nursing home. And she says this really traumatized her. You are in this nursing home and the nursing home is not well kept at all, if you can imagine. And of course, you're with these, you know, older people, these patients that are suffering from various mental illnesses or physical ailments. And so there's a lot of stench in the air. You hear a lot of moaning and groaning. And, you know, it was really scary for her. She said that she experienced such panic and terror that she never got over it. So it's an experience that she never really forgot. If you wanted to be good and tried your best, you tried to not sleep in the adjoining nursing home. She says, I was one of the lucky ones. I was allowed to go outside to school, which the other girls weren't. I started reading things like Wuthering Heights and stuff like that, which I really, really loved. I loved all that really romantic stuff like W.B. Yeats. I was W.B. Yeats as far as I was concerned. She didn't necessarily enjoy school a lot. She did say, though, that one of her teachers at this school gave Sinead her start in music because this teacher asked her to sing at a wedding. And at this wedding, the teacher's brother, who was a drummer for this Irish rock group called Tuanua, heard... Sinead singing and asked her to write some lyrics for some music that he had. So please forgive me. Tuanua, I believe is how you pronounce it, but I do know that it means the new tribe in Irish Gaelic. So he loved Sinead. Again, Sinead was young. She was in her teens. She was about 15. Um, so he saw a lot of potential and he asked if Sinead could write a song for their band. And she did. She wrote a song called Take My Hand. And it was their first commercially successful single. And it soared up the Irish music charts with their Roxy-type new wave sound. That's kind of how she got her first start in the music industry. And I must say, that is a really good song. I found it on SoundCloud. It's probably on YouTube, I'd imagine. But it's a really, really good song. And yeah, I'd have to describe it. As New Wave, she says, That was my first ever experience and I loved it. It really got me going. Reverb. I discovered Reverb and that was it. So yeah, I mean, that was something too. Like Reverb and all of these kind of experimental sounds were starting to come up as well. I mean, of course, you had like electronic drum sounds and you had synthesizers that were starting to take shape a little bit differently. So she's expanding her mind. All she knew was certain artists like Bob Dylan that she loved and the Beatles and Elvis Presley and all these other like American folk singers and rock singers from England. And now, oh my God, reverb? That's so crazy. So when she finally left the Magdalene Asylum after those gruesome, brutal 18 months that she had to endure, she went to boarding school in a town south of Dublin. She ended up shaving her hair at this point in time. And there's some varying accounts as to why she started shaving her hair. In one interview that I saw, she said that she had a sister who had gorgeous, long red hair, right? Beautiful. Her mother, though, thought that it was ugly. And according to Sinead, her mother would introduce her redheaded daughter as the ugly daughter. And she would introduce Sinead to people as the beautiful daughter that she had. So Sinead thought that was so revolting that in order to be in solidarity with her sister, she shaved her head in protest, which I thought was really cool. That was cool of her. Um, she also started shaving her hair because she didn't want to conform to what the typical beauty standards were back then. Um, so she thought, that's just my look. She said this to say about it. 
Everyone from Dublin was considered real strange, and especially me, because I had shaved hair and I wore strange clothes. It was a very closed community, so it took me literally a year and a half before anyone would speak to me. And I feel bad for Sinead because she felt like she was an outcast from her peers. She thought that she already wasn't fitting in anyway, so for her it was hard to kind of make friends and keep friends. While she was in school, she joined a band in Dublin that she met while she was on school vacation, and she loved this. She hung out with them, she made music with this band, and then when she had to go back to school after the vacation was over, she really missed being in a band. She said, the only thing I ever felt comfortable doing where I actually belonged, where she means being in a band, was where she thought that is my tribe of people, not these kids at school that think I'm a weirdo because I shave my head and I maybe wear different clothes, maybe that aren't super feminine or whatever. Like I wear what I want to wear, right? She's already becoming more and more rebellious and she's already accepting who she is and she's accepting that she's different and she's not trying to conform. She's not trying to fit in with society and what was normal, which I wholeheartedly respect for her. She wanted to just do things her own way and if she wanted to be in a band and shave her head and wear tomboyish type clothes, then that's fine. She actually tried to get thrown out of this boarding school on purpose because she wanted to be in this band and she wanted to get away and go back to Dublin. But when that never happened, she ended up running away. So she runs away back to Dublin where she feels most at home. And it was here that she was living on her own and she got a job. According to what I read, she worked at what was called a kissagram company. So it was essentially her taking messages from other people and she would go to the recipient's house. She would knock on their door, she would relay the message, and then at the end, she'd give them a kiss. Don't kiss people without their consent. Back then, I guess it was okay for this, and so I'd imagine the weird looks that she'd get. She'd also apparently do this in a French maid outfit, and I'm like, okay, that adds an extra layer of weirdness to this whole thing. Like, it's one thing to, like, randomly kiss strangers that you don't know. I don't know if this was full on the lips or on the cheek. I don't know. I hope it was on the cheek. But she then wears a French maid outfit. I don't know if that was like official attire for her work or if she just was like, fuck it, this is a funny thing for me to do. And so she's going to play this joke up even more by wearing a French maid outfit. I don't know which one it was, whether it was her idea or the company's, but I'm just like, wow, that's really crazy. So, I mean, you know, she has this job and at night she ends up playing pubs and she sings and it's just her up there with her acoustic guitar singing Bob Dylan songs to the audience. Uh, so this is what she says. I'm a very impulsive person. I just got this feeling in my stomach and I know I've got to do it. I have always been like that. And when I left school, it was like that. I will be a singer. I will succeed just because I knew. So as she was going to these pubs at night and she was trying to build up her reputation as a serious musician, she said that she would get annoyed because she was trying to sing, but yet others in the pub were just like talking over her at the bar and they weren't really paying much attention to her. I mean, she was little. She was tiny. I believe she was um, like about 5'4". She occasionally did grow out her hair, though. She didn't have a period of time where she always went with a shaved head. She had a period of time where she would let her hair grow out, but not super long. So... Sometimes she'd play with her longer hair. The other time she'd have it shaved to the skin with a little like stubble on top. You know what I'm saying? A little like shadow looking super adorable. She actually has the face for it, which I love. Like that's such a hard look to pull off. So honestly, on a side note, like that 
is such an awesome look for her to pull off. Um, she had the massive, like, doll, like, eyes, too, with the long lashes. Like, she was so beautiful. Um, unfortunately, though, people were not, like, giving her the time of day to listen to her songs. So she would rev up her vocal, and she would get louder, and she would, like, sing louder so people could hear her. And she says this about that. The loudness of my vocals was a complete accident. It started because I used to sing Bob Dylan covers in the pubs, and I used to get really annoyed when people would talk while I was singing. So I just shouted. But it really frightened people because I was quite small and having nice long hair. So I used to frighten them, which I enjoyed. She really, truly did honestly enjoy, like, messing with people, you know? Like, and she got her kicks that way, which I don't blame her. I think that's pretty funny. I mean, yeah, like, you you want to perform and you want people to hear you sing. So when people are ignoring you or they're not giving you the time of day, that is quite rude, right? Like, if you hear someone sing, you would, like, listen, wouldn't you? That's just, like, I think, like, common courtesy. So for her, she starts revving up her vocal, and she liked it so much that she then started adopting that kind of style into her singing. So it was here in February of 1985 that she would finally get some kind of a break in the music business. So there was a record company called Ensign Records, and the record company's partners were Nigel Grange and Chris Hill. So Nigel and Chris, they ended up going into this pub one day that Sinead just so happened to be playing at. She was in this band called Tauntaun Makut, and they thought the band was horrible, but they thought she was a really good singer. So they ditched the band, and weeks later, she ends up quitting, which good for her, because apparently if the band is shit anyway, why would you get dragged down with that if you're actually really good? Um, and she ends up sending Nigel Grange a demo tape of her songs. So she thinks this is awesome. I'm finally going to have a chance to sit down with these record company executives and get a record deal for my music. This is fantastic. So things are looking up for her. But before she was signed, her mother was killed in a car accident on the 10th of February seemingly out of nowhere. And she experiences having a weird, almost intuitive premonition, I suppose you could call it. Um, she actually has said in many interviews that she thinks that she's psychic and that she trained to be a psychic uh, for many years. But, uh, and she can read people. She has said that in later life that she felt like she could do this, like that she's just so open about it, um, about her intuitive abilities, which I think is cool. Um, not to say that she's psychic, but I think that the death of her mother just somehow like unlocked this part of her brain. She gives this detailed account of how she experienced feeling like her mom was going to die before it happened. She says, I was in a flat in Dublin where I was living. I was there with this boyfriend of mine. And all of a sudden, we started to talk for no reason about what we would do if our parents died. I got very upset for some reason. We just had this discussion. And the next morning, I was going to my dad, and I was walking up to the home that Sunday, and I just, I was destroyed. I just felt like I knew the night before she died that she was going to die. When she died was when it began to happen. Then I just knew that she was around. I could smell her. I knew she was sitting there. I always felt her telling me almost to do something. Up until that point, it had been a sad relationship. She wasn't a very happy person. She wasn't happy with her life. I always felt some understanding for her. As a woman, as an Irish woman, 
I felt that she should have been able to go out with somebody else. She should have been able to remarry. If it was me, I would react in the exact same way. Just bend the rules. She started to kind of understand where her mom was coming from. It didn't really surprise her that her mom was this way. I mean, according to what Sinead has expressed before in interviews, again, she insinuated that her mom abused her and that she wasn't a nice woman. And that could easily be due in part because, like Sinead said, she wasn't a happy person at all. She was stuck in a loveless marriage that she couldn't escape from. And she had children that needed to be dependent on her for food and for love and care and support. And she couldn't be the mother to provide in that way. However, I think as Sinead grew up a little bit more and she thought about it some more and she had her own children, she kind of understood where her mom came from. So while she expressed grief in the fact that her mom did abuse her, she also on one hand is like, I understand where my mom's coming from. So that's quite a very highly intelligent way to look at it. I think I think people might not be able to kind of like understand, you know, you get abused, but also your parent is doing the best that they can. So for her, she just was open to it. But also, I think it's so fascinating that she had this feeling that her mom was going to die and then she dies. And then she started feeling her mom's spirit around her. That's really interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Um, but she still feels like she's being like haunted in a way by her mom. Like she can't stop hearing the voices like of her mom and her dad in her head. She expresses later. And that it's almost like too much for her to deal with because like she's dealing and battling with her inner demons. Because like I said, she's dealing with mental illness throughout a lot of her life. And we'll get into what she was diagnosed with later on in the episode. That's kind of what ends up happening here at this point in time in Sinead's life. Before she signed to Insign Records, her mother ends up dying on the 10th of February in a car accident randomly. So sometime after her mother's death, and she was able to kind of move on from her mother's death, she eventually was signed to Insign Records, and she was sent over to live in London so that she could promote and come out with her music. She lived in a flat in Stoke Newington with no friends. She said that it was dreary, it was gloomy, it was gray, and I remember her expressing this detail that she thought the tea, the English tea, was, like, greasy. I remember her saying that in an interview, and I'm like, that's fascinating. I mean, of course, that is London, so that is the South, so I think they wouldn't make tea as well as the Northern folk. If she lived in the North of England, I think she'd have a better time. (laughs) It was here that through her aunt, she actually met a man and fell in love for the first time. And it's really unfortunate because this man does not treat her well at all. And according to her... He was the fulfillment of all my fantasies because he was black, but he was married. His wife was a homemaker with kids, and this guy, in fact, was a minister at this church in London. It lasted about a year and a half, and it was horrible and painful. I was madly in love, and he wasn't. So she really wanted to be with this guy that was two-timing his wife. Who, who had kids, and he would kind of have this hot and cold on and off relationship with young Sinead here until she ended up breaking off from him, which, thank God, I mean, Jesus. This is like her first relationship. So messy. Sinead definitely deserves a lot better than that. But things were looking up for Sinead eventually when she would meet Fakna O'Kelly. And <laughs> I had to Google how to pronounce his first name because, oh my God, 
<laughs> these Irish Celtic names and Gaelic names, they're so hard for me to pronounce, but Faulkner O'Kelly, that's his name. Um, he was her manager now. So she found a manager and this was looking up for her. So the first thing that she did with O'Kelly as manager for her, she would attempt to record the song called Heroin with U2's guitarist The Edge for the soundtrack to the film Captive. So I was like, huh, okay, what is this film Captive? I've never heard of this film before. This is another like side thing that I dove really deep into researching along with those Magdalene asylums because this was so utterly fascinating. I was like, how the hell have I not heard this before? So Captive was a 1986 Anglo-French movie based loosely on the true experiences of Patty Hearst. Now, Patty Hearst is a real person. She was the granddaughter of American publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst. She became known for the events following her 1974 kidnapping by the Symbionese Liberation Army when she was 19. And I read her story, like, on this whole side quest thing with Sinead O'Connor, just because she's linked to this movie based on this true life story. I was so beyond shocked. Like this girl was kidnapped because she was used as a pawn to get to her grandfather, William Randolph Hearst. And she was held for ransom. She ended up going to jail, serving jail time because she was Stockholm syndromed into robbing a bank with these guys. And it was just, I mean, it was mad. It was wild. I'm sure the movie is probably great. Uh, but this is the song that she did with The Edge for this movie. And this is what she has to say about the experience. I met Bono about six months after I moved to London. He heard some tapes I did with Tuanua years ago, and we just became friendly. And then he rang up and said The Edge was doing this thing and would I like to do it. So I did it. I have not listened to this song, like the Tuanua song, so I cannot say what I think about it. Um, but I'm sure it's a great song. But that was her first gig. Can you imagine like her first gig in the music industry is working with one of the most famous Irish guitarists with the most famous Irish rock group of that time? I mean, that's crazy. She was friends with Bono, for goodness sakes. She knows Bono and she knows The Edge. I mean, I'm not a fan of U2, but I understand the star power that Bono and The Edge and U2 had in Ireland and in the UK at large at this time. So this was very good for her, very good for her. After she worked with The Edge, she got a backing band together, and with her, she got to work on her debut album, finally. And unfortunately, she was fighting with this producer on the record, Mick Glossop, about how the album should sound. So she was just kind of saying that he wanted the album to sound kind of hippie, Irish folky, kind of 70s, like Grace Slick, Joan Baez type. And he thought that Irish women should be singing like, you know, fanciful Irish folk Celtic music. And she didn't want the album to sound that way because that wasn't true to her. And that's not what she wanted. She says, I didn't want the album to sound the way it sounded, but I didn't say anything for weeks because I thought, well, if the record company is happy with it, they know more about this than I do. They then said that they didn't like it. It never occurred to me that I actually had the right to question. I was ignorant and they played on my ignorance. And I do feel bad for her that she was preyed upon like that by people in the industry that knew better than her. You know, I mean, she, while she certainly does 
in some respects in her catalog and her discography have songs that could be considered fanciful Irish folk Celtic um, acoustic music. That's not what her sound was at all. She was very contemporary. She was also very rocking at a time when that wasn't really what women should be doing in the music industry. It was almost like she was like the first one that was being put to the test. And she almost felt like maybe like a hamster on a hamster wheel, just, you know, running around in her hamster wheel, you know, running, 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 running for these people in the industry that preyed upon her innocence and her ignorance because she was new to this and she didn't know. She didn't know that she could speak up. She didn't know that she had the right to question what they were doing. Oh, these are famous producers and these are famous uh, executives and whomever working with me on my album. Oh, I just have to take what they're saying. Okay, no, I can't question anything. But then she realizes, no, I actually have the right to say something and to speak up. So I'm going to. And good for her. I'm happy. I'm happy that she ended up learning that about herself. And that's how she also then becomes more of like a, a spearhead, a figurehead in the whole thing of her being domineering and and non-relenting with how she approaches talking about certain subject matters and her being very vocal. So while she was working on her debut album, she got pregnant. Now, she wasn't expecting this to happen. She said that this was a complete accident. However, she was happy that she was pregnant anyway. And so she told the drummer he was fine with it. Um, you know, of course, it's a shock. They weren't dating for that long or hooking up for that long before she ended up getting pregnant. But she approached the record company about this and said, hey, I'm pregnant. The record company, though, was like, um, you really got to have an abortion. Like, this is selfish of you to have a child while you're working on your debut album. Like, how selfish of you to do this? So they were forcing her to have an abortion. So disgusting. I would consider that abusive. I don't know. Like, forcing or trying to corral someone into having an abortion? Yeah, no. That is disgusting. And she ends up keeping the baby as, like, a fuck you to these guys, which I like. Uh, So that's cool. This is what she had to say about the situation. They said they'd invested all this money in me and that I was being very selfish to want to have a baby. They also told me a lot of shit about how it would die if I went on a plane. I was 20 years of age and I got pregnant by accident. I wasn't looking to get married and I'd only been going out with John for a month, but I was very happy about it even though it wasn't planned. So yeah, they were lying to her and saying all this stuff about how the baby would die. What kind of people are these? You know, I mean, how sick. It's almost like at every turn, this woman was like bullied and almost kind of like abused by all these men in the industry, but also by a lot of people at large in her life. And she's only 20 years old. My God, the Magdalene Asylums, her parents, and then the first guy that she ends up falling in love with. And then the record company. Oh my God, it's like Sinead can never have a break. But, and Sign Records scrapped the sessions that she did with producer Mick, the guy that wanted her to be like a hippy-dippy Joan Baez type. And she was not having that. Um, So she was happy that those first sessions were scrapped. Six months later, as she was pregnant, of course, and she had her beautiful six-month pregnant belly, she went back into the studio and started all over again. But this time, she produced the album herself. Even though her debut album isn't really an album that she has gone on to say that she liked a whole lot, she did produce it. If you're first getting into Sinead O'Connor's music, I would definitely suggest checking out her debut album because 
you know, she produced it herself at 20 years old. And I think that's a feat. It reminds me of Dave Grohl when he was starting the Foo Fighters by himself and he produced and did like the whole album, debut album by himself. So I really like when artists take that initiative and do it themselves. You don't need these fancy producers and sound engineers and whatevers that have worked with all these famous people and bands that think that they know a thing or two. Like, you know what you like, and she knew what she liked. So she did it while she was pregnant, by the way, which is hard to do. Her hormones were all crazy. She was trying to put out an album and sing. Like, that's hard to do. So while this album might not be one that she likes a whole lot in like a retrospective, I think it's great that she produced it. So definitely take a listen to that one if you're unfamiliar with her work. But the band finished the album and four weeks later, her baby was born. So the debut album was called The Lion and the Cobra. And it was only ever expected to have a U.S. sale of about 25,000 copies. But instead, and even better, it reached gold status and it earned her a Best Female Rock Vocal Performance Grammy nomination. The song on the album called Mandinka was a big college radio hit in the U.S. And that was the first song of hers, aside from Nothing Compares to You, that I actually heard from her and I fell in love with it. So now at 20 years old, having freshly had this baby of hers, she had her first U.S. national television appearance on the late night show with David Letterman in 1988, and she ended up singing that Mandinka song. She almost like got famous overnight. That's kind of how it happened, you know? She not only became a sensation in England and in her home country of Ireland, but she now is taking America by storm, which is a huge feat for her to have accomplished by herself. Now she's doing America. And now she's touring to sold out venues at just now at this point in the game. Now 21 years old as time is going on and she's selling out tours and she's making all these appearances and the album has been out for some time. And you know, she she's hanging out with her baby and it's crazy. She's so young and she became an overnight sensation. And it's almost like no one really taught her the pitfalls of fame and also becoming famous that quickly, especially at that young of an age. So she didn't really know how to kind of process this fast paced stardom that she now had that happened really quickly. So she tried her best to manage this as the years went on. Her second album, I Don't Want What I Haven't Got, gained considerable attention and mostly positive reviews. It was rated second best album of the year by NME, and it contained her international breakthrough hit, Nothing Compares to You, which is probably where most people have heard of her from. So I got to thinking, how did this even happen in the first place? Because I was always of the impression that Prince had given her the okay sign to sing the song. I, I thought he gave the song to Sinead like he helped other women in their careers by giving them songs to sing that he wrote. I didn't know that Nothing Compares to You was a song written and composed by Prince himself for his side project called The Family. The song appeared on The Family's debut album in 1985, but the album was such a flop that the band disbanded after that one album. <laughs> um, so somehow, though, Sinead's manager, O'Kelly, remembered this Nothing Compares to You song, and he suggested that she cover the song. The music video that she did, where it was just her with the close-up and her in the park, and then she's crying at the end of the video, that video was heavily played on MTV. Billboard named Nothing Compares to You as the number one world single of the year 1990 at its first Billboard Music Awards. 
she is really doing some great things. I mean, props to O'Kelly for suggesting that she cover the song because that was such a big moment. Prince didn't really necessarily give her like, here's Sinead, here's my song, take it and sing it. But he was completely cool with it. He had no problem with it at all. He actually didn't ever perform that song previously. Only after her making the song a worldwide single did he ever perform the song for the first time. So that's kind of the whole background there on Nothing Compares to You. Um, The crux, though, of the rest of this episode has to do with some of her more controversial things that happen now. So she has her debut appearance on SNL on October 3rd, 1992. She ends up singing this song live on stage at SNL. She has a photo up of the Pope at the time, and she rips up the photo of the Pope. I think it was Pope John Paul II. And she tore it up, and she said, fight the real enemy, and threw the pieces of the picture toward the camera. People did not know she was going to do this. She was scheduled to sing a different song, Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home, and Scarlet Ribbons, those two songs, from her album at the time, Am I Not Your Girl? That's the album that she was promoting. She changed her mind. She got permission from the show's production crew to replace Scarlet Ribbons with War. And they were like, that's that's fine. She intended to revise the song as a protest song against sexual abuse of children in the Catholic Church. So while they knew that was going to happen, they did not know that she was going to take a picture of the Pope and tear it up and throw it at the camera and say, fight the real enemy. So to say that wigs were blown off and that people were clutching their pearls around their neck, that is definitely... Putting it mildly, people were having a massive fit. Like NBC Vice President Rick Ludwin recalls that when he saw Shanae doing that, he literally jumped out of his chair. SNL writer Paula Pell recalled personnel in the control booth discussing the cameras cutting away. The audience were completely silent with no booming or applause, just like stunned. And the executive producer, Lauren Michaels, recalled that the air went out in the studio and he ordered that the applause sign to not be used, which I thought was funny. NBC received more than 500 calls, complaints on Sunday and 400 more on Monday. And they had a collective total of about 4,000 calls being so annoyed, like must have been a bunch of Karens or something. I don't know. Being so annoyed that Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope. How dare she ridicule the Catholic Church like this? How dare she make a mockery of the Vatican? How dare she do this? When in reality, she was bringing awareness to the fact that was not public at the time necessarily, again, an open secret, that there was sexual abuse going on within the Catholic Church and in the Vatican. So she had every right to do that. And I'm so glad she did that. Like she was so revolutionary with that whole thing. And I'm so glad she did it. Like she doesn't regret it either. And I'm so glad I'm like, yes, you have nothing to regret. You have nothing to regret. You did the right thing. When you have star power like this, and you have the ability to make a statement like this and you do it for the good of the people, yes, that is what you do with your star power. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy that Sinead did that. Like, I'm truly so happy. They received more than 400 calls, NBC did. How dare you have Sinead O'Connor on your show and she did this. I'm a God-fearing Christian, how dare this happen type situation, I'm sure. You know, whatever the hell these people were saying on the telephone that year in 1992. But you know, That made her an icon from that moment on, because now people understood that not only was Sinead O'Connor this petite Irish woman 
who dressed a little tomboyishly, not super femme, and she's singing in such a way that almost is like a banshee, which is so cool, and she's so different, and she's so vocal about these horrific things that are going on in society and in humanity, and she's speaking up about it. She was stirring the pot, and now people were, especially the American public, were really starting to understand, like, oh, this is Sinead O'Connor, not the girl who was on the David Letterman show doing Mandinka. Oh, okay, got it. Right. Okay, she's like a Kurt Cobain type. And I liken her to Kurt Cobain because Kurt Cobain was the exact same way. He also used his star power to host like strong uh, opinions like that and, you know, basically say to his audience, if you're a racist, if you're homophobic or misogynistic, I don't want you in my audience or listen to my music. And I love that. More people need to do that. So I'm glad that she is in that same category as Kurt Cobain and others that are around them that are so vocal about injustices in the world. We need more people like that. So well done to her. But I that's just one of the massive things I suppose you could consider it like a scandal quote-unquote, that happened at the time. That's one of the biggest things that happened in her career. But, I mean, she doesn't regret it. Many years later, in 1988, she said this, Think at the time, for each person that didn't understand what I had done, there was a person who did. You would think the way the papers wrote about it that nobody understood it. There are still people who don't understand why I ripped up the Pope's picture, who saw it as a vicious attack on an old man who had had assassination attempts made on his life. But obviously it wasn't a personal attack on the man. It was an attack on the church in general and for its policy of silence on the abuses that were taking place, particularly in Ireland. I do feel vindicated by all the information that has come out in the last few years concerning child abuse within the church and how the church tried to cover it up, especially in Ireland. With some people, you can never win them over. And I respect those who think it was a terrible thing, but it was something I felt I had to do and I don't regret doing it. Bravo. She has no reason to ever regret anything that she did at all. Getting back to the original timeline here, um, June 10th, 1993, Sinead was responding to the media posting about her and her family in the papers. And she wrote a really long kind of open letter poem. It's been described as a poem, but it's an open letter, really. Um, She wrote this and she sent it into the Irish Times describing how she wants people to stop being so mean and saying mean things about her and her family. Um, It's very long, so I kind of broke it up and I just kind of gave the overall feel with three paragraphs here. I'm just going to read part of this from her own voice because she took the time to write it. She thought it was important to say, so I'm going to take the time to read it. My name is Sinead O'Connor. I'm a woman. I have something to offer. I am and have always been carrying a lot of grief for my lost childhood and for the effects of its horror and violence on my life. I am grieving the loss of my mother and father. I am grieving the loss of my brothers and sisters, the division of my family, my own inner child, who is really me. Remember, you do not know me. Who was tortured and abandoned and spat at and abused. Who has been beaten naked until she was bruised. Who has grown up with no sense of self-esteem, no sense of trust, no ability to be intimate and who therefore is in very great pain 
which needs to be looked at and worked through and expressed. To get to the joy, I need to release the pain which is blocking me. If I don't do this, I will not survive. If I don't do this, I'll never be the singer I am capable of being if only I can love myself. If only I can fight off the voices of my parents and gather a sense of self-esteem, then I'll be able to really sing, which is what I want more than anything else in the world. Recovery has always been my main goal. I have used my voice in every way. I have become very self-conscious and frightened as a result of being famous. One doesn't see oneself reflected in the mirror. I lost myself. I cannot sing until I'm ready to be myself. And here's how you could help. Stop hurting me, please. Saying mean things about me. I've been in public since I was only 20. But I could sing then because I wasn't frightened. I know I've been angry, but I'm full of love, really. Do you think you could stop hurting me? It is suffocating me. Like I said, there's a lot more that she wrote, um, but I wanted to consolidate and just kind of give the main overall points that she was putting out there. So in February of 1998, you know, some time has gone on. She's a bit older now, and she was sitting down with this interview for a magazine. And I just thought I would put out there the question that the interviewer asked her, one of many, but I thought this was the most important one. She asked Sinead, do you still consider yourself a protest singer? And Sinead says, I've gotten through the protesting bit. I've gone through the stages of feeling the anger and expressing it. Now I want to heal myself and anyone who cares to listen. So at this point now, we're moving into the 2000s. And, you know, so Sinead has apparently gotten all of the protest stuff out of her system. You know, she created 10 studio albums in her lifetime. She has a mass array of so many amazing songs and albums under her belt that she created, you know, for us. She's right. She did get famous by accident, but, you know, she created these albums and these songs not only for her, but for us as fans. She sacrificed a lot for fame. Let's remember that. So I'm unfortunately getting into the sadder parts, even even more sadder parts of her story as she is growing up as an older woman here. She appeared on an episode of the Oprah Winfrey Show on October the 4th, 2007. And it was here that she disclosed that she had been diagnosed with bipolar four years prior to that. And apparently in 1999 on her birthday, her 33rd birthday, she had attempted suicide. So she believed for many years that she was bipolar. She had been diagnosed with it. So she was on bipolar medication for it. So she thought, well, this is what I've got. But on a follow-up episode on Oprah on February 9th, 2014, Sinead had said that she actually received three second opinions and was told by all three that she was not bipolar but she was actually diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and borderline personality disorder. Can you understand the trauma of being misdiagnosed for years, thinking that you're bipolar and you have to take bipolar medication for this mental illness that you do not have? And you're experiencing all those side effects from the medication that you don't, you know, you don't have the illness, So, but you're experiencing the symptoms all the same, right? from the medication. And then now she finally gets diagnosed properly. That is just, I mean, so many years of her life where she was misdiagnosed. And now finally in 2014, she was diagnosed properly. You know, she is no stranger to, I mean, even though she wasn't diagnosed with depression, you know, attempting suicide definitely falls under the bracket of depression. So she's no stranger to that either. She's no stranger to the pitfalls 
and the really serious emotional negative energies that she was surrounding herself with, but also within her own self, in her mind. So due to everything that she experienced as a child, this is affecting her now as an older woman, you know? In 2017, she spoke about how alone she had felt since losing custody of her 13-year-old son at the time. So, you know, she went on to be married a couple of other times and she had many beautiful children. So at this time, I wasn't necessarily sure why she lost custody. I don't know if it was due to her mental illness, but she lost custody of her son. So she felt like she was so alone. And she said that her doctor and her psychiatrist were the only thing keeping her alive as she continued her battle with her mental illness. This was actually a really sad situation where she went on and she posted like videos, crying in these videos and expressing how alone she felt. She really felt like she had nobody to talk to. You know, she had her fans. To her fans, she felt like she could talk to them. So, you know, she's really kind of opening up that parasocial relationship that fans and their idols have by being more vocal about her mental illnesses, which on one hand, it helps out other people that hear that from her and realizes that, oh, I'm not alone because Sinead O'Connor feels the exact same way, which is nice. But at the other time, that's not healthy either for both parties, because, I mean, that puts Sinead in a very vulnerable position where she's being very vocal and open about a lot of her trials and tribulations, and I'm sure that's not good either for her. So, a month after this post where she was crying and she was talking to her fans about how she felt alone, she appeared on Dr. Phil. According to Dr. Phil, Sinead wanted to do the interview because she wanted to, quote, destigmatize mental illness, end quote noting the prevalence of mental health issues among musicians, and that is awesome too. I think we can probably disassociate ourselves from our idols because we think that they're so much more powerful than us, and we put them on pedestals. She brings herself down to our level, and she says, I'm just a human like anyone else, and I have been abused and beaten and sad just like all of you guys, so you are not alone. And not only... Um, I'm not alone and you aren't alone, but there are so many of my contemporary musicians that feel the same way. So I really, really appreciate that she did that and she was so open and honest because honestly, not a lot of people would be that way. So on January the 7th of last year, her 17-year-old son, Shane, the same son that she lost custody of back in August of 2017, he was reported missing. He was found by the police in the Bray Shankill part of Dublin. Sinead stated that her son Shane had been on suicide watch at the hospital that he was staying in, and she said that he had, quote, ended his earthly struggle, end quote. Sinead criticized a lot of different organizations for mishandling her son's case. She predominantly did criticize the health service executive. At the end of the day here, you know, she is grieving the loss of her 17-year-old son. And one of the last videos that she did to her fans when she was alive, she was in her apartment and she was just kind of briefly mentioning like how she was like struggling still with his death. And of course, of course she would. It just kind of exacerbated the problem and it made her mental illness a lot worse, and she really fell deeper into the hole. A week after her son's death, 
She was hospitalized of her own volition following a series of tweets that she did in which she said that she was going to take her own life. So like I said, she's no stranger to attempting suicide, right? She's no stranger to this at all. She's done this in the past. You know, I mean, not a whole lot of times, but she has done this in the past. So she has a history of this. And that is just the most horrific thing And it ends so tragically for her because just the other day, a couple days ago, she was found dead in her flat in South London at the age of 56. Her family issued a statement without indicating the cause of her death, just to kind of end it with my own personal opinion. You know, I don't know, like I said, I haven't read any new articles yet that say if there has been a cause of death um, given to her, so I don't know. The likeliness of this being something to where she took matters into her own hands is very probable. A lot of people can die due to a broken heart from the loss of a parent or a child dying or, you know, the loss of a loved one. That can happen, literally. You can die from a, like, broken heart like that. So I would imagine, you know, it could be a lot of things. You know, we can speculate all day as to what it could be. But, you know, I'm really interested to see what it'll say her cause of death is. I did this episode to learn about her, learn about, you know, the person that she was and what she endured in her life and to share her story. Because if I didn't know, then I know that a lot of you guys don't know or you don't know the extent of what she suffered with. Her past is just one part of her and her past with her childhood and what she endured there. It's just one part of it. But, you know, I also want to bring the music into it as well, because that, I think, is the most important aspect, you know, of this whole thing here. Is not only did I want to bring to light a lot of her story, because I think her story deserves to be told, so that, again, we can pay homage and respects to her as properly as we can, but also so you guys can take it upon yourselves to look into her discography, because I'm sure all of you guys have heard that Nothing Compares to You song that she did. I'm sure you know that. But she's so much more than that song. Like, she's more than just that cover song. Most assuredly, give her a listen. She's a wonderful, fantastic artist with such an amazing range. And she did so many interesting things with her voice. And she had her own unique style. And she spoke out against things that were so cruel. She was a person for the the downtrodden and the abused and the torn and tattered just like her. Remember her for the brave, strong, fierceless Irish woman that she was. She was proud to be Irish. You know, she knew what it meant to be an Irish woman and a woman in general in society. And she was such a delight. She seemed like a really lovely, real person. And, you know, we need more of those people in the world. She was such a bright light. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. And yes, peace and love to Sinead O'Connor. Rest in peace. I will see you guys next Wednesday for another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.